Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. G'day, Sarah. I'm Peter from Bendigo. I have a question. What is so important about this election? I'm Sarah Wilson, and you're listening to This Wild Election, a mini-series that will help everyone who gives a shit about the stuff that defines our nation to make their vote count. As we inch to voting day, it appears more and more possible that the election will result in what's called a hung parliament, which is when neither major party gets enough seats to form government on their own. So neither the Labor Party nor the Liberal National Party or LNP will win 76 seats. Now, this happens very rarely, but when it does, one of the two major parties will try to form what is called a minority government along with members of the crossbench, so the independents and the members of the smaller parties, such as the Greens. Now, like I say, it happens really rarely, but the last time was actually not that long ago. It was in 2010. And before that, I think it was in 1940, the last time that we had a hung parliament. Now, back in 2010, some of you might recall that Julia Gillard's Labor Party formed government by negotiating with four crossbenchers. Now, there's a lot of conjecture about hung parliaments. Scott Morrison's Liberal National Party is very much running a scare campaign at the moment, saying, and you might have seen about the place, that a hung parliament will create unstable chaos. Which is kind of ironic coming from a party that has had three prime ministers in nine years and who has a deputy who calls his leader a liar. And there's all kinds of floor crossings going on behind closed doors. But it's also understandable because they've got most to lose if there is a hung parliament. Because if you've been on this ride with me in this series, you'll know that it looks like a number of pro-climate, progressive female independents look like winning seats onto this crossbench. They're very unlikely to form government with Scott Morrison's LNP based on the huge divide between their policies and the LNP's policies. But that's just my take for now. The bulk of commentators, though, and journalists and various think tanks that I have communicated with or heard from, they say that hung parliaments don't lead to chaos. In fact, quite the opposite. And many are making a point of calling it a balanced parliament as opposed to hung. In fact, a study done by the Guardian newspapers found that more policy passed through Parliament under this Gillard government, this hung Parliament back in 2010, than at any other time in recent history. So today we speak to one of those four crossbenchers who negotiated with Gillard and her government, former independent Tony Windsor. 
on what this hung parliament in 2022 could look like and which leader, Scott Morrison or Anthony Albanese, might be better equipped to manage the situation. Welcome to my podcast, Tony. Well, thank you very much for having me, Sarah. I would love to cast your mind back to 2010, the last time Australia had a hung parliament. And I'm wondering if you can recall when it became apparent that there would be a hung parliament and that you would have to decide, along with two other independents and the Greens member at the time, Adam Band, who would become leader out of Tony Abbott and Julia Gillard. What was it like? And also, what came next? Well, on the Saturday night of the election, people were promulgating the proposal that there would be a hung parliament. It wasn't very all that obvious, really, because there were a lot of seats, I can't remember, but I think 15 or 20 that were undecided. So obviously, people were guessing on the polls. The poll wasn't actually declared until about 16 days after the election. Nonetheless, there was a lot of discussion about what would happen in terms of a hung parliament. So that created a degree of pressure, particularly on Rob Oakeshott and myself, Andrew Wilkie and Adam Bant. Bob Catter was in the mix as well. But it wasn't until the next week, three or four days after the election, that it really started to pressure up that it was coming down to look as though it would be a hung parliament. And then there were a lot of discussions taking place. Rob Oakeshott and I particularly sat down and determined that we'd work out a process that whilst the poll hadn't been declared, that we'd use that time to establish a process to get people on both sides of the political agenda to focus on the issues. And hence that process unfolded over the next uh, couple of weeks. So it was two weeks, and I remember it distinctly. It was a very tense time for those of us watching it, but I can't imagine what it would have been like for you. What was it like? Was it stressful or was it exciting? Oh, a bit of both. There was a degree of pressure, of course, yeah, because particularly the media kept saying, oh, you've got to let the Australian people know who their government's going to be. Well, the polls hadn't been declared at that time, so it was an act of hubris to just assume that we were going to be in a hung parliament and that my vote in particular would make any difference. We didn't know that. But the process started to unfold. And once you establish a process, it becomes relatively easy other than the sort of media control. And you just work through that process, which we did with both sides. We had meetings with Ken Henry and the various departmental heads at the time and worked through the various issues. And at the end of that, obviously, we had to make a decision. People always said, oh, well, how did you come to arrive at that? Well, it was, it was pretty easy, really. It was based on policies. The policies that I took to the electorate of New England and uh, was endorsed on the basis of those policies, including climate change, the National Broadband Network, some of the uh, environmental and resource management issues that were around at the time. So they were policies that, that I stood on and was endorsed on. And it became very apparent towards the end of the second week that Julia Gillard was probably the only one that was remotely interested in, in those issues. So the process uh, gave the answer in the end. So all of you made the decision based on what you'd gone to the election with, the policies that you'd promised the voters in your electorate who'd voted you in. They voted you in, so you were representing them when you were making the decision. So Tony Abbott would have been trying to court you, I would imagine. Was it convincing at any stage or was Julia Gillard really the only option in terms of being aligned with the values that you were representing in your electorate? Well, Tony Abbott, realised after about 10 days that we did have a process in place, that it wasn't just going to be 
throw a coin and heads or tails. And then he really started to engage. Up till then, he just assumed, oh, they come from traditionally conservative seats, whatever that means. They will have to support the Liberal Party. When he realised that there was a panic on, I know I can remember Julie Bishop coming to see me and saying, Tony's not handling this very well, is he? I said, oh, well, he's not. He should engage. And then he did and promised everything. And he even left a phone message on my phone saying, I'll do anything to get this job. The only thing I won't do is sell my ass, and I'd have to give consideration to doing that. Oh, so, God. Yeah. I mean, the big thing we remember Tony Abbott for is being totally against any kind of climate policy. So was he kind of going to budge on that front? And did you believe him? Well, towards the end of the process, he yeah, was quite serious about, I will do anything. Yeah, so if we demanded two or three uh, emissions control systems, uh, trading systems, etc. He, he would have probably agreed to them. But what he was doing was showing a great degree of sincerity uh, because he'd all, mm. already put in plans with his uh, cabinet members that they would go to get support from the independents and then go back to the polls after the New South Wales election had taken place. And I think that, from memory, was about six or seven months from when the hung parliament was decided. So he had no sincerity in having a legitimate parliament. He just wanted to get control of it and then do what he wanted to do, oh. and he would have dissolved it at some time. And put us all after. through another election, which, you know, gosh, yeah. <laughs> the idea of having to go through a second election right now in 2022 just horrifies me. But I think, Tony, there have always been a few concerns around hung parliaments and, of course, not helped by the scare campaigns that are circulating in the media but also coming from Scott Morrison's LNP. One of the main ones is the question, is it democratic for a bunch of independents to determine a government? Well, our constitution that the Founding Fathers put in place doesn't mention the word parties. It's not mentioned at all. What it does mention, though, is representatives. So we have 151 duly elected representatives from their various electorates. That's what the constitution says. Now, once those representatives are elected, in theory, they go to Canberra and then decide how to govern the nation. We've got this mindset in our heads now that it has to be one side or the other. It doesn't have to be like that at all. It isn't like that in the Senate. It can be done differently. And I notice, you know, the current list of independents are using that phrase brilliantly. They want to actually do politics differently. They want to empower the parliament so it makes the decisions rather than the backroom deals that occur now. You know, Scott Morrison, even last night, made the comment, I won't introduce an anti-corruption bill unless everybody else agrees to it before we put it into the parliament. Well, I thought the parliament was about debating these big issues and coming to some reasoned and logical decision and then having a vote. So, uh, you know, he's just making a farce of the parliamentary process and assuming he who governs or she who governs will rule the roost. Well, in a hung parliament, what that does is actually empower all the MPs in the parliament. There's a whole list of things I could go through, to, you know, from the Murray-Darling process that evolved. A hundred years, the majority parliaments have been trying to resolve the Murray-Darling issue. Yeah, the Julia Gillard um, minority government, I think The Guardian did a big study of it just recently. I think the study came out last week and it actually found that the Gillard government, you know, working with the four of you as on the crossbench, actually passed more bills, more acts in parliament than any other government in history. It was incredible and by a long shot. So sure, it may have been chaotic at times, but it was also extremely efficient and active and progressive and productive. Personally, I don't think you should 
just judge a parliament on how many pieces of legislation that it actually passes. But you're right to say that. I think it was a, a record, particularly in, in uh, modern times at least. But what the home parliament did, and I think without patting ourselves on the head too much, the people on the crossbenches were genuine in terms about the country. They weren't there to hold the country to ransom. You know, one side had a, a greater majority than the other. So a lot of their policies had been endorsed by their people, as mm. some of the things that I stood on. Where the crossover occurred, well, there was obvious agreement, but there were disagreements that took place from time to time and modifications that took place, but they were done through debate on the floor of the House or discussions or meetings with experts. They were done in an amicable fashion rather than this confrontational fashion that the political parties tend to go on with today. Yeah, and you mentioned this idea of empowering Parliament and empowering the democratic process once again, because I think the point is made, and I read a really great piece by Alan Kohler, a reasonably conservative economics writer, who pointed out that this accusation of chaos is a little bit tough to take from the Liberal Party, which in itself is a coalition. It's a coalition between the Liberal and the National Party. And rather than seeing some of these disagreements and debates, healthy debates happening on the floor of the Parliament where it's all public, we can all view it, it's transparent, they're having those kinds of divisions internally, huge divisions on really important things like climate policy and whether we are heading towards a net zero position for 2050. And we don't get to see what's happening behind the scenes because it's happening within the internals of a, of a political party. And so I think it's a little bit rich to make the claim that a hung parliament with some independence on the crossbench is going to create some terrible, terrible chaos. Leading to another point that a number of people have raised with me more broadly when I've been discussing this idea of a bunch of independents who have risen up of, out of grassroots movements wanting to really tackle some of these core issues like anti-corruption commission, climate, the gender gap issue, First Nations voice to parliament and so on. And the question comes up, will these independents control the economy and supply and flip side they don't have any sort of economic policies and they haven't got the ability to do costings. What do you say when people come to you with that question? Well, the handbrake on chaos is to go back to the polls. Our dealings with Julia Gillard didn't guarantee that she'd be there in three years' time. We believed in her sincerity that she intended to serve as long as the parliament was, was a viable parliament. It was a very viable parliament. There's no doubt about that. History says that now. A lot of legislation was passed. A lot of reform was passed. Mm. So when people say you can't reform anything in it unless you've got the heavy majority, that's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. So in terms of how people in the future will deal with that, most people just will just have to refer to history and, uh, and, and see what happened. If the government of the day is being held a ransom over supply or the economy, for instance, or, or any other issue that they violently disagree with, well, they can just initiate going back to the polls or there could be a decision on the floor of the parliament, here again empowering the MPs of the parliament, could be a decision made to change government on the floor of the House. It happens and, it, it, as you say, it's a handbrake if things do descend to that point. But I suppose the point is that it's unlikely to get to that juncture. The concern that people have is that the economy and foreign affairs happen to be the big things that people worry about. What they're concerned about is that these independents aren't equipped to run the economy. Correct me if I'm wrong or right here, Tony. 
it's not the role of every MP to run the economy. No matter what happens, there will be a party of some sort that holds a minority government. They will be in charge of those kind of portfolios, you know, the, the economy and foreign affairs. So, yeah, is there anything you can add to that to sort of comfort people that all of that's not going to be tossed out the window because there's going to be these mad independents asking for an anti-corruption commission at all costs? A majority on the floor of the House will determine the passage of legislation as it does today. But, but assume they all become a bit idiotic and make a demand on the parliament. Is the other side of the parliament going to sit there and let that happen? I would think not. The opposition, whoever it is, is not going to sit there and let the economy be destroyed by a few people. It is physically, it can't happen. That's absolutely right. So if these independents do enable a minority government, does that mean they then become almost a lackey to that government? So we've seen lots of scare campaigns around the place that a vote for an independent is a vote for Labor and all of that kind of thing. Or do they remain truly independent? Is that possible? We made an agreement with Julia Gillard to allow supply to pass through the House, which is the, the budget bills, and not support any frivolous no-confidence motions. Everything else was up for debate, everything mm-hmm. else. Now, if there was a warranted no-confidence motion, it could have been supported. But do you remember Tony Abbott used to say this, this sham of a parliament doesn't have the confidence of the House? He never tested that confidence. There was never a no-confidence motion moved passed or filed in terms of Julia Gillard. So the independents would be free to look at every piece of legislation on the basis of what it is and discuss it in the parliament. And they would be free to introduce pieces of legislation. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Into the parliament and have those discussed and resolved. And the opposition of the day, whoever it is, would have the, the power to introduce legislation into the parliament. And because the government of the day doesn't have a majority, if there's good legislation, they could quite likely get that legislation passed. Both sides of the parliament can be empowered via the, the hung parliament arrangement where no one is in the absolute majority. And as happens in the Senate now, it's quite often that the opposition will move amendments or introduce legislation into the Senate because no one has the absolute majority. Now, we don't see that as being chaos anymore. We see it as being fairly progressive and a lot of reason debate takes place. That's what can happen in the House in a hung parliament situation. 
Well, Tony, you've set that up super, super well. And I know that you're watching all of this closely and you are, in fact, one of the advisors to Climate 200, which is a grassroots funding body that's helping some of these independents get up and running. These teal independents who are emerging from almost 30 seats across the country, so 30 out of the 151 seats, they're running on climate and a bunch of, I guess, progressive social issues. Based on this, who do you think they would likely form government with in the case of a hung parliament? Well, it's impossible for me to to say that. And it's almost impossible for them to say. And it would be an act of hubris if they started to say, if I'm elected, I'll support this side or the other. We don't know what the numbers will be. We don't know how the Senate will come down. There's a whole range of unknowns that you don't know until after the election. So I think it would be quite ridiculous if they came out and said, I'll I'll guarantee support for this particular person or that particular person. And they'd lose a lot of leverage as well. But personally, I don't think there will be a hunk But if there is, those people and the candidates that I've seen, I've spoken to quite a few of them, they would be excellent representatives in hung parliament or in a majority parliament on one side or the other. They are demonstrating what they're standing on. They are the voices of those electorates. They are the voices of those people. Now, that would transfer into the parliament. And the very nature of most of them is that they actually want to do good. They don't care about the posturing and the politics. They care about the issues. And that's the only reason people like uh, Monique Ryan and Zoe Daniel, etc., are standing there. They're sick of watching these people trivialise critical issues. And hence, they're saying, well, if you won't do it, I'll have a go. It's a real threat to this game they play in the hold on power. Kate Cheney made an important point there a while back when she said, it's almost as if we've got power without purpose. Well, we want people to be in the parliament that have some purpose for actually being there rather than just being an occupant. And Kate Cheney, of course, is the candidate running as an independent in the seat of Curtin over in WA, sort of in, in, a, in Perth. There are a lot of scare campaigns, but I guess the point is, is a lot of these independents have risen in response to the current LNP's climate policies in particular. You're absolutely right. Most of them are saying, I'm not telling you who I would make a deal with if, if it came to that, because they are in fact independent. However, if you line up what their policies are with the current LNP, it would make it very difficult for them to broker any kind of arrangement with the current LNP party. And some of them, of course, have said, I will not make an arrangement with Scott Morrison. And they've singled him out. I think Zali Stegel has said that very, very specifically. Yeah. And the reality is that there's no provision that says they have to make a deal in terms of either side. They don't have to do that. They can let the parliament do the work. The, The piece of paper that the people say, oh, well, you sign a piece of paper that you'll support someone or the other. There's no legal standing in that. It's the parliament that has the power and should have the power to both form a government, and if the parliament's not working properly, to dissolve a government via the governor general. So when those people say, oh, you've got to support one side or the other, well, you don't have to. You don't have There's a third option. No, I don't. I can stay out of that. Well, they could have physically abstained from a, a no-confidence vote if they wanted and let the others decide. There's a whole range of options there. But to try and make all those decisions based on what you think may happen or may not happen, I think there'll be quite a number of independents in this parliament, irrespective of whether it's hung parliament or not. I think there'll be, there'll be growth in numbers. So far, we've got people like Zali Stegel, who's in Warringah. We've got Helen Haynes down in Indi. We've got Rebecca Sharkey 
So they would be joining that sort of crew of roughly four, what are known as progressive independents. How many extra ones do you think you might get up this election? Well, I'm I'm under-guessing and a a lot of them are very tight, but uh, there could be another four, six, including our David Pocock in in the Senate, in the ACT. I think he's got a very good uh, chance. Excellent chances. What a great person to be putting himself up for the vagaries of politics. I know. He's awesome. And for anyone who's listening, I have done a podcast with David Pocock in the past. He's a friend of mine and we spoke when he first quit rugby at the top of his career to dedicate himself to the climate movement. I wouldn't have guessed he ended up here, but I'm glad he has ended up running for the Senate in Canberra. But you're absolutely right. I think I'm hearing five or six. However, I think people are saying for there to be a crossbench that really kind of can hold the balance of power in a meaningful way, there probably only needs to be about three. But it's looking like there could be four to five. We don't know. We're speculating at this stage. Polls are notoriously inaccurate. But look, leaving aside the hung parliament, that may or may not happen. One of the parties may win, of course, an outright majority. But how much influence will these independents have? And what will their role be? What could we see happen? When I look back over my years in politics, my most effective parliament was in New South Wales when there was a majority to the Labor Party of 16. The way to get things done is firstly to voice the views of your constituency, but argue logically in the parliament about those issues. So irrespective of whether it's on parliament, I don't think it makes a lot of difference. The the calibre of these people who are likely to get in is such that their voices will be heard. And I'll just give you an example. Mm. When Peter Andrew, probably the greatest parliamentarian that I've ever known back in 2006, the Snowy Hydro scheme was proposed to be sold. It was owned by three shareholders, New South Wales, Victoria and the Australian government. All of those governments and the oppositions in those governments, and there was a blend of oppositions, all voted in their parliaments to sell Snowy Hydro. Now, Snowy Hydro's still not sold, and it wasn't sold because particularly Peter Andrew, and I I helped them, there there were others in the parliament, not many, but others, that said this is not what the Australian public want. They articulated a view. They they got the people behind them. They got 100 eminent citizens to sign a document to the Prime Minister. There were protests. There were a whole range of things happened. And John Howard, to his credit, decided to walk away from it. Not because he didn't have the numbers to get the vote up in the parliament, but he was hearing the voices loud and clear. This is not good for us long term. Now we fast forward to today. Scott Morrison's running around saying, isn't it great we've got snowy hydro that we can produce renewable energy to save the nation, to save climate change, to all these great things, some of which are very dubious in my view, the claims that are being made. But, But the fact is... And the added impact that Snowy Hydro, not on energy production, would have had the sale of it, we would have had to the distribution of water within the Murray-Darling system. So it's an example where you don't need numbers. What you need is voices. The moderates on the, in the, say, North Sydney, for instance, they've had the numbers. They've been in a majority of parliament. What they've lacked is the voice to actually articulate their views. So they say they'll do it behind closed doors. That's not what Parliament's about. Parliament is about hearing it in the chamber, hearing it in the community, hearing it on the radio and television. That's why their voices have failed and these groups of people, these voices, are looking for new voices to articulate their concerns. 
So what you're saying is these independents will essentially create better debate because they're representing more diverse opinions. And so as a result, various policies, which have been at a gridlock in some cases for 15 years, if we look at the First Nations voice to parliament, we've been kicking that can down the road for way too long, but also climate policy, the gender gap stuff, the ICAC stuff, there'll actually be a better chance of there being healthy, robust debate and out of that comes decent policy. The likelihood of more reform in a hung parliament is highly likely. Yeah, not yeah. less. Mm. Actually, that's when things happen. I'm actually quite excited about a shake-up because we have been at a stalemate in this country on some really, really important issues, which I think if they can get debated in a robust way again, I think people will get much more engaged in politics again because there'll be movement. It won't be like a bloody quagmire, a swamp of no man's land, go nowhere stuff. That's clearly my opinion. But yes, I do find <laughs> all of this very, very exciting. Now, look, in a previous episode, I spoke to Karen Middleton, who did the, wrote the biography of um, Anthony Albanese. And in that discussion, we talked about the fact that he was obviously the leader in the House of Reps at the time when there was this hung parliament in the Gillard government in 2010. So you would have had a fair bit to do with him, I would imagine, because a lot of the negotiations and discussions probably were done through him. I imagine you've also worked with Scott Morrison at various junctures. I'm wondering if you could give a bit of an insight on who would be a better leader for managing a hung parliament should it eventuate. Well, I had, I had more, I've had much more to do with uh, Anthony Alb- Albanese than, than Scott Morrison, even though you know, I've had dealings with Scott as well. But in the hung parliament, Albanese had the job of being the leader of the government in the House of Representatives. So he did a lot of the grunt work in terms of just managing the day-to-day operations of the parliament. So we had a lot to do with him, not only on legislative matters, but on management matters and and other things as well. I had a view of Albanese when I first went to Canberra that he was a bit of a bomb thrower and smart ass. I think Howard used that term the other day, that he was some sort of bomb thrower. As I got to know him, and particularly in the hung parliament, I gained a lot of respect for the bloke because he wasn't a Gillard supporter when the Rudd-Gillard That's thing right. happened. He was a Rudd supporter, but no one worked harder than Albanese to make that parliament work, whereas some of his colleagues were the ones who were actually trying to white out Julia Gillard all the time. So I, I gained a lot of respect for Anthony Albanese through that process, that he, that he was prepared to get in there and do the work irrespective of who the Prime Minister of the day was, irrespective of the makeup of the Parliament. Scott Morrison I had far less to do with. But I don't think he could handle a Parliament very well at all. I think the nature of the person is to be dictatorial. You know, I was talking to someone who works in the Senate, not a senator, but who's worked there, and he, he said he estimated he'd had 27 meetings with Scott Morrison on briefings over the years. Uh, probably over about 10 years, and uh, he can't remember uh, any meeting where Scott Morrison didn't lie or mislead the group that he was briefing. So, It's a very familiar story now, isn't it, this bullying and lying? I remember when we started to get these stories emerging, I thought, surely that can't be true, but it's now just kind of almost a matter of fact. It's like, oh, yes, and Scott Morrison, oh, yes, and he was a liar and a bully back in 2000 and whatever. It's just prolific. And I would imagine, Tony, that is not the kind of behaviour that you would want from a leader who is going to have to negotiate a diverse number of voices and interests and needs from across the country. 
Well, he would have to have, have some sort of miracle conversion in terms of his Which nature, he may believe in. <laughs> well, he may, he may, and then anything's possible. My dealings with him, I think he'd struggle. He'd probably try, as Tony Abbott would have tried too. But yeah, Tony would have struggled. I think he recognises that now. You know, he's more of an oppositional person and a, a divider rather than a uniter, whereas Albanese's at the He's had to work through those sort of issues in the past. So if I was asked, who do I think had better management, manage, which was the question, I'd say Albanese would probably have the background to be able to and manage it. What is a difficult circumstance, but uh, I think he'd be able to manage it quite easily. Given that, bare minimum, it's going to be a parliament with a whole bunch of independents to consider, representing different ideas, and it could potentially also be a hung parliament where those kinds of negotiation skills are going to be critical to the future of this nation over the next three years. And I think it is worth bearing in mind who's going to be better able to manage that situation, what is a precarious but also a very exciting and potentially progressive situation. Sarah, if I just could comment on on a point you made there a moment ago, Please. I think people have got to recognise too that the makeup of the Senate is actually critical to the operations. Yeah, why is moment. that? Because you've brought that up a few times and, yeah, that'd be great yeah. if you could explain that. Well, for anything to become law, it has to go through both Houses of Parliament and, uh, and then be endorsed, obviously, by the Queen, the Queen's representative, the Governor-General. There's going to be some fairly significant shifts in the in who's who in the zoo in the Senate this time, because what all the polls are indicating that there's probably somewhere between thirty and forty percent of the community that aren't going to vote for the major parties. Now, in the House of Representatives, that may may or may not make a difference to some certain seats, but in the Senate, it could make a lot of difference to the makeup of yes. of the Senate. So, one of the beauties of having independents that are free to represent their own communities and represent broader issues, is that they can actually work with the senators, a lot of which of whom will be either independent or minor parties or smaller groups. No one will have a majority in the Senate. In fact, I'm guessing if David Pocock and a few others get up, and it looks like the Greens may well in fact get a few more senators, I'm guessing that the crossbench may well be bigger than one or other of the major parties in the really? Senate. Really? So wow. the capacity to deal from the House of Representatives, not, not deal in terms of monetary reward, but to actually physically go and talk through issues. You know, we were unsuccessful in the lower house on this particular thing, an anti-corruption thing or whatever it is. Uh, can we talk to you about this? And, and see what and you're going to do in can, the Senate. Yeah. And do something in the Senate. So people forget that there's a lot of discussions between the two houses take place. And, yeah, that's uh, a really great uh, reminder. Uh, that'll occur again. That's an awesome reminder and thank you for explaining it so well because that ability to negotiate and to be collaborative and collegiate with other people in the Senate is really important. How wonderful if Parliament gets determined over the next three years by members' ability to negotiate and discuss things in a civil way. Wouldn't that be sad? Hey. Oh my <laughs> Wouldn't that be sad? Oh my to see Parliament actually what doing an outcome. What our founding fathers actually thought that it was a, it was why it was set up. Yeah, maybe How we're returning to the past. Beautiful. Tony, thank you so much for your time. We have got less than 30 seconds before this Zoom call cuts out, so we have timed it beautifully. Enjoy May 21st. I hope you have a, a wine handy. <laughs> okay, thanks, Sarah. All the best. 
hands up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.